The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Thanks very much to Noel and Christopher and Andrew for uh, leading the music this morning. Take your Bibles again today and go to the book of Acts, yet again to the book of Acts chapter 11, and we're going to read from verses 19 down to verse 30. Acts 11, verse 19 down to verse number 30. I'm reading from a New American Standard, and if you want to, you can follow along in the little insert we put in your bulletin for the day. The Word of God says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that, that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the Word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, Preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that they would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the, in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Let's pray again briefly. Loving Father, again we stand with the word of God open before us, and we bow, O God, in submission to you, And we place ourselves, O God, in submission to your word. Father, we pray that you would speak through your Holy Spirit to every one of us, that we might hear your voice and understand the message that you would have for us from this word. And we ask you these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. God does his work through ordinary people. He does it through ordinary people who are saved and filled and empowered and equipped by the only unique, extraordinary, absolutely perfect Spirit of God. God works through ordinary men and women to build His churches. And church planting and church building has nothing to do with bricks and mortar and concrete and carpentry and all of that. Church building has everything to do with Christ's individual disciples growing 
in their understanding of Christ and Him crucified, increasing in our faith and repentance of sin, and increasing in the fear of God, the love of God, and the love for each other. Church building is God's working through ordinary disciples who are gathered together as local churches to minister to other ordinary disciples for their good and for God's glory. Now, last week, we began to see two of four stages of church planting and church growing in Antioch. First, we saw that God births His churches through ordinary witnesses. Second, we saw that God grows His church through ordinary encouragers, a man named Barnabas in particular. And these newly saved Gentile disciples in Antioch began as a group of pagan idol-worshipping Greeks, but by the end of the passage, one year later, they're known and called Christians by their unbelieving Antioch neighbors, and they're ministering to the needs of other disciples in faraway places for them. So how did they get there? More importantly, how is it that we at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church, 21 centuries later, as a similar group of ordinary disciples will also be known and called Christians, not just by us referring to ourselves as Christians, but being known and called Christians by our unbelieving family and friends and neighbors. How does that growth and transformation occur? Well, we'll see it, a part of it anyway, in the next two stages in this church planning that we can see here in Acts 11 in Antioch. And carrying on from last week's sermon point numbers, the two we're going to look at today are the third and fourth, and they are that God establishes His churches through ordinary teachers, and God ministers to His churches through ordinary disciples. I'm sure you've noticed, but in case you hadn't, notice this, it is God who does all the work. He is the one who works through us and in us, and He delights to use us as ordinary men and women. We respond to God by faith in God, to His leading and moving as those ordinary witnesses did. We respond to God in submission to God's authority over us. And brothers and sisters, I would suggest that's one of the greatest difficulties we have is submitting ourselves to God and His Word. We've always got a better idea, another way to do it. We always seem to think we can do it better than the way God's planned it out. But the simple reality is what God wants from us is faith in Him and submission to His authority. There are simply no super-Christians. There's no super-pastors, no super-elders. There's no super-deacons or missionaries. There's no super-Sunday school teachers. There are no super-Christians. We're all just ordinary people filled with the almighty, all-knowing, absolutely holy God. And God is the one doing the work through us. And what God requires of us in doing this work is faith and submission. So notice that God establishes His church through ordinary teachers. In verse 24, Barnabas is encouraging and exhorting the disciples and considerable numbers are being brought to the Lord. And perhaps at this point, God awakened Barnabas to realize that what was needed at Antioch was a sustained systematic teaching. And so 
in agreement with what will become the doctrine of the plurality of leadership and eldership in the church, Barnabas leaves Antioch, he goes over to Tarsus, and he goes searching for Saul, Paul, and brings him back to Antioch to teach the church. Now, just before I make a stumbling mess of it, Saul is Paul. If I refer to Saul and I refer to Paul, I'm not referring to two different guys. I'm referring to the same guy. So if I jump back and forth, that's, you know I'm talking about the same guy, okay? Just want to make sure that was clear. Saul was born around 9 AD. We know a little bit about him. He was about 10 to 15 years younger than Jesus. He was born a Roman citizen, meaning his father had received, or maybe his grandfather had received citizenship in Rome, And Saul had inherited that citizenship. He was born in Tarsus, which was very much similar to Antioch. It was a major population center in Asia Minor. It was on a significant commercial route. And therefore, it was influenced by all the cultural, uh, current cultural trends and movements. We have mass media, social media. We have YouTube, internet, television, radio, uh, text messaging. We, we communicate and we pick up what's going on around the world in all different kinds of ways without even leaving our bedroom. But in those days, news, information, all that traveled along highway routes. And Tarsus, like Antioch, was on one of those routes. So all the different things that were going on in the world, they found out about relatively quickly. We find out in milliseconds, they found out probably in months. But for their time, that was still relatively quickly. But although he was born in Tarsus, the Bible tells us in Acts 22 and verse 3 that Paul was brought up in Jerusalem. He was educated under a man named Gamaliel, who was a leading rabbinic teacher of Saul's day. He had a particular appreciation for Hellenistic culture, so Saul who was born a Jew, born in Tarsus, was very much exposed to the Hellenistic Greek culture of his day. He was soaked in that. But he was very much a Jewish man. The Bible tells us in Philippians 3 that he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, meaning a Hebrew born of Hebrews, meaning he boasted a pure Jewish lineage all the way back. He could trace his ancestry back to the days of the 12 sons of Jacob. In Galatians 1, he was advancing in Judaism beyond his contemporaries. He was extremely zealous for the traditions of Judaism. And Philippians 3 tells us his words that in regards to the law, he was blameless. In his misguided zeal for God, he even persecuted the church. And some scholars view Saul of Tarsus as one of the first century's greatest scholars and thinkers. He was way up there. And you say, he doesn't sound very ordinary to me. And maybe he wasn't in that sense. But God could not and God did not use him like that. God first greatly humbled this young, zealous, driven Jewish man. God humbled Saul greatly in order to use him mightily. Just as God must humble all of us in order to use us for his glory and for his church <clears throat> excuse me for his church listen one thing we got to get through our heads a proud man is of little to no use to god 
And God will humble us that he might use us. We all know the story of Saul's conversion, Acts chapter 9. And shortly after his conversion, he had to flee for his life from Damascus. He went off to Damascus, and I don't know if he was riding a horse or not. All the little Bible story booklets always have him riding a horse, and he looks so confident and proud, and he's riding off. He's going to capture these Christians, and God humbles him, knocks him off his horse, knocks him off his feet, and he goes into Damascus, led by the hand, blind and stumbling along behind his friends. And God humbles him. He starts preaching Jesus, and he has to flee for his life. He gets lowered down the outside of the wall of Damascus in a basket. basket. And for some reason, I keep hearing this idea that he was in a fish basket. I don't know if it was the same or not, but whatever it was, he went out in pride and arrogance, and he left in humility in a little bit of disgrace. He flees over to Jerusalem. Not long after that, what has to happen? He flees again. And if the scholars are correct... He goes off and he spends about 10 years in Arabia and Tarsus. And that's where Barnabas now goes and searches for and finds him and brings him over to Antioch. God humbled this zealous young man that he might use him greatly. And in verse 26, we see how they met and taught the church in Antioch. Now, our passage gives no record of the content or the manner of Saul's teaching But we can see from other texts his manner, his way of ministering, and we can assume at the very least it was very similar to the way he taught here in Antioch. Paul described the weakness of his ministry. In 1 Corinthians 2, he spoke neither with superiority of speech nor wisdom. He ministered in weakness, in fear, with much trembling. He used no persuasive words of wisdom. He wasn't a smooth, silver-tongued orator. He was simply a Jewish man who loved the Lord, and he ministered in weakness and fear and trembling. Excuse me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, That made it worse. There we go. In 2 Corinthians 10, he recounts how the Corinthian believers viewed him, and they said that his personal presence was unimpressive. His speech was contemptible, meaning it was of no account. So he's an ordinary, unimpressive, unremarkable servant of God who faithfully, carefully taught the whole counsel of God to them. Paul describes the content And the practice of his ministry like this, he says that he knew and preached Christ and him crucified. That was the only thing he desired to know amongst those he was ministering to. And I'm sure as he preached Christ and him crucified, he unpacked all the implications of what that would mean for them. In Colossians 1, he describes the manner of his ministry. He proclaimed Christ, meaning he preached and heralded. It says he admonished them, which means that he at times sharply rebuked and corrected the people of God when they went astray from Scripture. The Bible says in Colossians 1 that he taught them, meaning he explained and expounded the Scriptures to them. He labored, striving according to God's power, which mightily worked within him. So he did the hard work of ministry. One of the telling statements that Paul gives us of his ministry is Acts 20 and verse 31. It says, He admonished them with tears. 
In other words, he knew what it was to be sorrowful in ministry, to work and labor, to teach the people of God. He corrected them with a broken heart. He wasn't a heavy-handed, top-down kind of guy. He came alongside and taught and preached and expounded the Word of God. And when they went astray, he got alongside them and weeping with tears over their going astray, he admonished them to bring them back on the right path. But above all those methods of ministry, one statement sort of outstrips them all. In 1 Corinthians 2, it says, He ministered in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Meaning what? It was the critical key to His ministry, the power of the Holy Spirit. It was not by His personal ability or His learning or His talents. It was not, nor will it ever be, by those things. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we make far too much of the right way to preach. I was listening to a um, a podcast thing. These young seminary professors were talking about preaching and and describing the right way, the best way to preach, and so on. And one of them was talking about Spurgeon, and he sort of said with a smug sort of look on his face, well, he was a great preacher, but we don't recommend anybody to preach like him. I thought, that's interesting. Spurgeon preached 6,000 plus sermons and Spurgeon recorded in his diaries that he never preached once where somebody didn't get saved. In other words, every time he opened his mouth and expound the word of God, people got saved. I thought to myself that about that young seminary professor, maybe if we preached more like Spurgeon, I don't know, maybe not. But one thing I do know for sure It's not about the right way to preach. It's not about all the methods in the world. It's about preaching by the power and the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. The right way is the man of God's own choosing, filled with God's Holy Spirit from the Word of God, proclaiming and teaching and admonishing the people of God in his own weakness and and fear and trembling with much tears and much prayer. That's the right way to preach. Notice Paul describes the purpose of his ministry. In 1 Corinthians 2, it was so that their faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He wasn't looking to build a name for himself. He wasn't looking to gather a following. He was preaching and teaching and ministering so that the faith of those listening to him would rest on God, not on him. In Colossians chapter 1, his purpose in ministry was that he might present every man complete in Christ. Everything Paul did in ministry was for the glory of God and Christ. It was for the benefit and growth of the church. They grew and were transformed by God through Paul's teaching, transformed by God, not by Paul's teaching. His teaching was just a mediator. It was just what God used at that moment. They grew and were transformed by God through Paul's teaching such that they were described by their unbelieving Antioch neighbors as little Christs, Christians. God powerfully used these two ordinary men, Barnabas and Saul, together to teach the disciples. And God still uses powerfully humbled men to establish and grow the church. So long as we're willing to only be preaching and ministering by the Spirit, to preach Christ and Him crucified, to admonish wayward believers with tears, to labor in the word and doctrine according to God's power that works within us so long as the minister's goal 
The preacher's goal, our goal, my goal is, to, is that listeners' faith might rest on God and His power, not on my teaching and preaching, so that at the end of the day, we present every man complete in Christ. Time out for a sec. You ever notice these fancy ministry names they have for guys on radio and TV, you know, Truth for Life, Insight for Living, all those kind of cool names, right? Grace to you, right? They're great. They communicate something. Uh, one day, and when I was younger, I thought it would be kind of cool to have a ministry of that. What would I call it? And I finally figured out the perfect name for a ministry, signpost. You say, signpost? What's the point of that? What's a signpost do? It tells you where to go. It points you in the right direction. When you get to, you drive somewhere, you know, you drive up to, uh, Cam lives in Portland, we go on the way to Portland, and I, my wife, you, you put her blindfolded in the dark, make her dizzy, put her in a car and tell her to go to Portland. She never looks a map. She goes straight there. She has that inward sense of direction. I, on the other hand, do not have that. You put me in a room with one door and say, find your way out, it'll take me half an hour, right? And it's just the way I was built. But when you get to your destination and you get all the way there and you think to yourself, and me, I'm driving, I watch every signpost. Which way to Portland? Right. It says Brisbane coming up. I'm obviously going the wrong way. And you no, know, you go back that way. And when you finally get to your destination, what do you say? Those signposts were so cool. No, you say, wow, it's so great to be at my destination. The point I'm trying to make is this. A signpost is simply there to tell you which way to go so you get to the right place. And when you get there, you're glad you got there. A ministry, a minister, a pastor, a preacher, a teacher, a Sunday school teacher, whatever they are, their goal, their role in ministry is to point the people of God to God so that when the people see God and have that fellowship with God, they're not rejoicing in the pastor. They're rejoicing in God himself. And that's what Paul was saying. My goal is that every mind might make it all the way to Christ and stand before Christ, and I will push the flock of God towards Christ and say, there they are, the ones you died for, the ones you saved, the ones you washed and cleansed, and here they are. I just brought them all the way home. That's it. I didn't even bring them. It was the Spirit of God doing that. That was his goal in ministry. God grows His churches through the ministry of ordinary men, preaching, teaching, exhorting, admonishing the flock, among whom God has placed them as His voice, God's voice, to be heard and an example to follow. But at the end of the day, His name to be forgotten and God to be focused on above all else. I hesitated whether to say this or not, but I'm going to just bite the bullet and say it. Beloved, be very, very careful of idolizing preachers. I listen to online preaching all the time. I have my favorites, and I make a very purposeful decision to keep switching them over, to keep watching and listening to different ones. You know why? Because there's a real danger that we start focusing on one or two, and them and them only, and we become followers of a man. That's a terrible danger. It leads to all sorts of problems in the church. It leads to problems for the one that you're actually doing that to and problems for you. So I encourage you to remember this. There is some great preaching and great teaching out there available. Lots of it. I know. I look for it and listen to it. 
but be very, very careful that we don't idolize those men and make them the focus and not Christ about whom they're preaching. And I could think five or six of the ones I listened to, if they were all sitting here, they'd all nod and say, amen, yeah, exactly. Moving on. Notice in verse 26, for an entire year they met with the church. Now the word church simply means a group or gathering or assembly. A church that does not gather is not a church. Now, obviously, sometimes, like in pandemics, we have to find other ways of getting together. So we do it on Zoom or online and so on. But a church is a church because it's gathered together. It's a group of people. And listen, God designed His church to be together, to be gathered together. That's why they met with the church. The pattern example of Acts all the way through it is the church gathered together. In Acts 2, the church was together when Pentecost arrived. In Acts 4 and Acts 12, they were together for prayer. In Acts 20, they gathered together to break bread. In Acts 20 again, they gathered together as Paul taught them all the way to midnight and then all the way around to dawn, about a 10 to 12 hour church service. Awesome. Let's do that. No, let's not. Okay, so they were all together. The point is they were gathered. So why is gathering so important? Why did Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Saul and Barnabas meet with them? And the answer is this, the church fulfills its four central functions in the context of being together. In Acts 2.42, the Bible says they devoted themselves, the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayers. All four of those happen in a church that's gathered together. Paul and Saul gather the Antioch disciples together as a church for the purpose of teaching them the apostles' doctrine. They came together. God drew them together. God commands us to be together as a church family and a church body. Now, lots of people have recently argued, I don't need to be gathered together with the church. I can be a Christian and be outside of the church. That's fundamentally unbiblical. The Bible does not ever countenance or teach that idea. We are to be together as a body of people. You say, well, you know what? I can listen to far better sermons from far better men. And my answer would be, absolutely. Yes, you can. I know. I listen to them too. But listen. Those online men don't know you from a banana. That's the reality of it. Shepherding the flock happens best just as Jesus said it. He said the shepherd knows the sheep and he calls them by name. He leads them out and they follow because they know him. The sheep know the shepherd. They hear his voice. It's his voice calming them and his hands feeding them and his hands caring for them. God Design churches and pastoral ministry to happen in the context of a gathered church with people face to face with elders and pastors to get to know each other, to listen and learn from each other. Please understand what I'm about to say. I say in love for this church because you are my family and I love you all very dearly. A disciple who makes a habit of choosing to be absent from the gathering of God's people for worship, fellowship, prayer, and teaching is living in disobedience to God. That's not just my opinion. That is God's word. 
The Bible says in Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice all those statements in those verses. They're all the context of plurality. Us, our, us, one another. The church is about the body as a whole, not just individuals. The positives in those Hebrews verses, they're the reasoning behind the one negative. He says, to answer the question like this, how do we hold fast the confession of our faith? What's one way that we individually hold fast to that confession of our faith? It's by not neglecting to meet together. How do we stir one another up to love and good works? By meeting together, by gathering together. Texts and emails and phone calls are great, but they are no substitute for being face-to-face together. How do we encourage one another? By meeting and gathering together. Again, you can encourage through texts and emails. I do it all the time. But they're no substitute for being together as God's people face to face in a church together. Listen, fellowship is a two-way street. Please don't ever get the idea that you come here to be fed and that's it. You come here for two purposes, to be fed and to do feeding. Fellowship is a two-way street, brothers and sisters. We need your fellowship for our building up and our encouragement. And you need our fellowship for your building up and your encouragement. We need each other because we are all in this together. Brothers and sisters, it's not always possible. I get that. Sickness, work responsibilities, travel, those stuff like that. It gets in the way. But brothers and sisters, it must be our first and highest priority to be together with all the saints as much as we possibly can. We come together one day a week for worship and feeding and equipping, and we go out the other six days to witness, to minister, and to work. One of my buddies in pastoral ministry said to me, you know, the church is like the, the, uh, the hospital station behind the lines. The individual units go out into the battle and they go all the way down to the front of the trenches and they fight all week in the trenches and they, and they throw gospel bombs. Bad analogy, but you know what I mean. They throw the gospel out there. They preach. They minister. They work amongst the unbelievers. They're on the front lines. And they get beaten down and worn out and discouraged. And at the end of the week, they come back through the lines all the way back to the aid station. And they gather together in the aid station. And in the aid station, they're given fresh clothes. They're given a wash. They're given hot food. They're re-equipped with ammunition and all they need to carry on another week in the battle. And they go back to the front lines and they keep fighting for six more days. That aid station is like the church gathering. What happens to the believer who decides to stay out there for longer and longer and longer. He runs out of ammunition, he runs out of food, he runs out of strength, and he runs out of hope. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we desperately need each other. God didn't create us like this and put the church together the way he did just to create rules for us to obey. He did it for our good and for his glory. 
So Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, meet with him for about a whole year. And in verse 26, the Bible says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The result of the work of God through two ordinary men, Barnabas and Saul, was that the disciples were transformed by God into little Christ and recognized as such by the Antioch unbelievers. Through the work of God, Sorry, the work of God through the word of God ministered by men of God to the people of God resulted in transformation of those people into Christ's image. It's a transformation sufficient that outsiders recognize them as belonging to Jesus. Remember Acts 4.13? Remember the story? Peter and John, the man that's lame and he's healed, and all kerfuffle goes on. They wind up standing in front of the whole Sanhedrin. And they ask him for an account, and Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he stands up in a bold and confident voice. He proclaims the gospel amazingly to these well-trained Jewish uh, priests and lawyers. And the Bible says that the Sanhedrin observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained, if I could insert a word, ordinary men. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. In other words, the the presence of Jesus in their lives had transformed these ordinary, humble fisher folk into men that could stand in front of a whole group of lawyers and priests and high priests and proclaim confidently the gospel of Jesus Christ without any fear. The disciples' confidence, their spirit-filled behavior and words all testified to their having been with Christ, their having been influenced and changed by Christ. These Gentile Antioch Christians, they're growing and being transformed from self-centered, Christ-centered to being, to being godly, Christ-like, loving men and women. The church was being changed and grown by God because God used ordinary men and women, ordinary men in this case, to preach and teach the truth to the people of God. Their faith was working itself out in love for God and each other, which brings us to the last point. Fourthly, God ministers to His church through ordinary disciples. In verses 27 28, God sent the message of a need. He sent it to the Antioch church via some prophets from Jerusalem. Now, this is a big question. People will say, what about the prophet? Is there prophets today? Do we have prophecy? All that sort of stuff. Well, let me see if I can explain it as simply as I can. These prophets, as they were, and we can see it in verse 28, they spoke by the Spirit. Okay, notice that. They were not charlatans. They weren't frauds. They were legitimate prophets. So how do we understand these spirit-filled prophets and their gifts? And the simplest way to understand it is that to see it as a transition, part of a transition from Old Testament ways that God worked to the New Testament ways. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 24, the Bible tells us that the priests were given the responsibility of teaching the congregation of Israel the truths the statutes, the laws, the commandments, the ways of God. That was the priest's responsibility. And the Spirit-anointed Old Testament prophets were God's spokesmen, raised up by God, anointed by God, to preach and call God's people to obey God's Word and God's law, to return to the Lord when they had wandered away, to reinforce their message 
they gave prophetic warnings about the results of failing to obey and return to the Lord, but that wasn't their primary role. And some groups of believers, God bless them, but they've made a great habit of studying all these prophetic messages, trying to figure out what's going to happen. They turn the Old Testament into a book of whodunits. What's going to happen? Who's this? What nation? What? All that. That wasn't the point. The Old Testament prophets spoke to us just like our moms, right? You all remember that. Thus saith your mother. If you don't clean your room, judgment days are coming. Who remembers that? Come on. We all remember those days, right? And I was great. I didn't clean my room and judgment day most certainly came. And I'll tell you, the Board of Education was applied repeatedly to the seat of understanding and it produced a lively repentance in me, I'll tell you. My mom got that wooden spoon out and wailed away with it. You get to meet my mom in December. She's coming here. She's half my size, but she's got an arm like Arnold Schwarzenegger for that wooden spoon, let me tell you. That's what the Old Old Testament prophets were doing. They were saying, return to the Lord your God, obey the Lord your God, be faithful to God, and if you don't, this is what will happen, and if you do, this is what will happen as well. That was their Old Testament role. Now, Also, in the Old Testament, the prophets at a later period began to write the Word of God. So we have all those books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, and so on. They're all written by the Old Testament prophets. In the New Testament time, in the time of Acts, there's a transition from Old Testament ways to New Testament ways. The apostles, not the prophets, but the apostles are those who wrote and spoke and taught Scripture. Yet... Occasionally, we see these Spirit-filled prophets appearing in Acts, speaking by the Holy Spirit of future events, as these men did. They did it by the Spirit. This was legitimate. They weren't faking it. But over time, the New Testament gift of prophecy transitioned to basically preaching. And in today's age, the gift of prophecy is simply preaching God's Word. We already have everything God desired us to know sitting in this book in your hands, in your laps. Our goal isn't to speak new Scripture, despite what some folks in Southern California are still trying to do. That's not done. That's finished. It's complete. Our goal now is to preach what's already here. Something else you got to remember here. The book of Acts is primarily descriptive, not prescriptive. What does that mean? It means that Acts describes what happened from which we draw lots of lessons, and we do. But as far as prescriptive for what we're supposed to, that's not found in the book of Acts. That's primarily found in the epistles. They are God's prescription to us for how we live our lives as both as individuals and collective as a church. So, Acts is descriptive, the epistles are prescriptive. Having said all that, which is just basically background material to understand what's happening here, the most important part is, these disciples hear about a need that's happening in Jerusalem. There's a need for poor uh, Christians, disciples of Christ in Jerusalem. So what they do is they gather together to meet that need. I want to make a point here. God uses ordinary disciples to minister to others' disciples. Let's read again, verses 27 to 30. He says, 
At this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in the charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Is anybody else here really hot? A couple of you nodding, a couple of you saying no. <laughs> the guy with the jacket on is saying, no, I'm, I'm fine, it's okay. Okay, we'll leave the heat alone then. Jesus is asked one time, what is the greatest command? And he answers in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus loved the Lord God, His heavenly Father. He loved God by living in sinless, righteous, holy obedience. He loved God by taking every opportunity to be alone with His Father. He loved God by obeying His Father even to death on a cross. And He also loved His disciples. and He loved us and them by sacrificially giving His life, by dying on a cross to save them and us from the wrath of God that is surely coming. And we, we and them as Jesus' disciples love God and we love each other when we sacrificially give ourselves, our time, our obedience, our loyal devotion to God to meet each other's needs. Why do we gather together as a church? Because we can sacrificially give to supply each other's emotional, spiritual needs by getting alongside of each other, encouraging one another, and so on. These disciples living in Antioch hear about the great need because of a famine that's spreading all over the world, and they get together, and as each has proportion of means, meaning that they didn't all give the same amount. Some of them, if what we know about the early church, a lot of them would have been slaves, some would have been tradesmen, some might have been professionals, they might have been lawyers and doctors alongside of slaves. And obviously they didn't have the same means to give, so in proportion to what they had, they gave. And they gave out of love for each other. They saw and heard the need through the prophets. They were compelled by love for God and love for their brother and sister to do, to act as each was able to, to contribute to the needs of the church in Jerusalem. These Antioch disciples, they had grown and they were still growing. They'd come to be so Christ-like that they were recognized uh, as such because of their love for each other and their love for their neighbors, their love for God. And listen, brothers and sisters, Christ-likeness is to love God, absolutely. But Christ-likeness is also to love our brother, our sister, our enemies, those who persecute us and hate us and all the rest of it. These Christians were doing the very same thing on behalf of their believing brothers and sisters whom they'd never met. This was their... Faith working itself out through love. That's what Paul talked about in Galatians 5, verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. 
They loved, and so they gave, each one according to their means and their resources. To go back to the togetherness and to tie the two together for a second, you might think to yourself, I'm a young believer. I don't know much about the Bible. I don't know much about the Lord. What could I possibly give? What do you know? I know that Jesus loved me. I know he died for me. I know he saved me from his own wrath. You go up alongside some older brother and sister in Christ and you tell them, hey, I just want you to know that Jesus loved me and he loved you too. And you share that little simple encouragement with them, I guarantee you, you will encourage them no end. You say, how? They already know that. Because when you share like that, when you let them know that simple truth of the gospel, the gospel is a profound truth. It doesn't matter whether you know it in great detail or just a little tiny bit. Each in proportion to their need contributed to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And as us, as we come together, each in proportion to their means can contribute to the other. Even if you say, I know so little, all I got is questions. Awesome. Bring your questions. Ask the questions. Do you have any idea how encouraging it is? There there was a young lady we used to have in our church in Casey. Uh, At the end of the service, she used to do this. some of you know her name, so I won't mention it, but um, she'd come running up to the front, and she'd have, we had sermon notes we gave out, like the ones you got in your thing, only you left more room for writing, and she'd fill every square inch of her paper with writing and notes, and she'd have a whole pile of questions, and she'd go, now, you said, I said, yes, I did, what about this? Oh, right, okay, let's think about that. And we work through it together. And sometimes those questions would take two minutes to answer, and sometimes they'd take two or three hours to work through and answer those questions. But even though she didn't understand all the, what was going on, her questions were tremendously encouraging because she was saying, listen, I get what you're saying. The Spirit of God is, is helping me to understand what you're saying, but there's more. I want to know more. That was a tremendous encouragement. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen, God brought us together as a, as a family. Look around you. No, really, look around you. Just turn your head, it won't hurt. Look around. All those people you see, one day we will spend all of eternity together. This relationship that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ is not one that's just a short-term thing. You don't stop being a brother and sister in Christ when you walk out of a church. That relationship goes through all of eternity. And we're put here. God, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that God arranges His church as He desires for His purposes. So why are you here at Noble Park Baptist Church? Because God puts you here. He puts you here maybe because you need to learn something. He puts you here maybe because He has a work for you to do here in this church. Maybe we need to learn something from you. But the answer is this. How do we put this all together? It's faith in God and submission to God. It's faith that God knows what He's doing. He's put us in this place. He brought those Antioch believers to faith in Christ through the witness of some ordinary disciples. He built them up through the witness and teaching of an ordinary teacher. And then He exposed the need to them so they could meet that need. God doesn't do things by kind of a, oops, oh, I, ooh, I didn't run around, kind of, kind of plug holes. He's at work. He knows what he's doing. He's put you here today for a reason that may not come to fruition till 10 years in the future. He lifted me up out of Vancouver, moved me over to Victoria to a place called uh, 
Victoria, though it was the city. <laughs> and he put me there, and there was a guy there who was a Bible school student, and I had a certain understanding of the Scriptures, and we got together, and he started challenging me, and I learned all sorts of things about the Scriptures, and I met, spent time with Uncle Jack and spent all times of time learning things about the Scripture, and God was moving me around, exposing me to all different kinds of men that they might teach me. What's the point? The point is that God is sovereign over all His church, God puts you here for a reason. And brothers and sisters, when we absent ourselves from the gathering of God's people for worship and fellowship and teaching, obviously it's not always possible. But when it is, and we choose not to, for our own reasons and devices, we miss out on what God is intending to do in our lives. And the work that God intends to do today, He might have to bring you around and do it again. And again, and learn those things over and over and over again. At the end of all that, as God's growing us, we then respond to meet the needs that God's bringing before us. In these cases, they saw a need in Jerusalem, and as each had proportion, they gave to meet that need. So what do we do? What's our response to all this? To recap it and draw these couple of points. God births His churches through ordinary witnesses speaking about Jesus as Lord and Savior and God. You have no idea if the fellow you're witnessing to at work, across the back fence, across the street, might one day be used by God to lead a mission field somewhere around the world. You have no idea. All you got to do is be faithful and share the message. God grows His church through ordinary encouragers who infuse and impart truth to encourage and exhort fellow believers to remain faithful to God with a resolute heart. You have no idea a a word, a verse, a prayer you share with somebody might have a profound impact. God might design it for just the right moment. You have no idea how people, people send me encouragement. It's great. I love it. If you want to send me a verse, bring it. I'll take it. Anyone you want to send. And there have been some profound moments when I've opened my phone and read a verse someone sent me and been reduced to tears because that verse was exactly what I needed to hear right there and right then. Ordinary encourages God grows His churches. God establishes His churches through ordinary teachers who in weakness and fear and trembling preach teach, admonish with tears their fellow believers with a desire to see them complete in Christ and their faith securely resting on God. God uses ordinary people. That's all He's got. And He uses them powerfully in extraordinary ways, but only by His working through them. And God ministers to His church through ordinary disciples who love God and love their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not about what you don't have. It's about doing what you can with what you do have, what you have got. And as you come together, as we come together, God will build you up and you'll have more to minister with and more to share with. So what does all this require of us? It's basic. It's faith. It's believing God's truth and trusting God Himself with all our heart. That wherever He's placed you, He's placed you there for a reason. To learn, to grow, to be challenged, to be, encur- to be an encouragement, to do some challenging, to do some encouraging. It requires, secondly, the hardest bit of all, submission. 
we as humans born in sin, living and loving sin, and saved from the power of sin, still have that inborn thing that we wrestle with. We wrestle constantly all through this life of whether or not we will submit to what God calls us to do or not. Bowing my thinking, my will, my behavior to God's will and God's will, God's word. Our problem is not that we don't know what God requires of it. It's that we don't want to do it, right? At the end of the day, let's be honest. I know what God wants of me. I get in a certain set of circumstances. I know exactly how God wants me to respond. And there is a stubborn little rebellious boy that stands there and just don't want to do it. Our problem is not that we don't know what God requires of us. It's that we don't want to do it. We always have a better plan. If only God would change to suit our ideas and our plans, it would go so much easier for us. Guess again. No submission to obedience. Sorry, submission to obedience is what God requires. It's submission to be scattered when God scatters us. It's submission to be used when, where, and how God uses us. It's submission to His ways, not ours. It's submission to His Spirit working within us. That's how God grows His churches. I hope and I pray, I plead with the Lord that he would use each of you in all of our lives to help and encourage and grow this church. All right. Let's pray. Then we're going to sing a hymn before we go to the Lord's table. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we just give thanks this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, just think about that verse again that says that loving His own, He loved them to the end. He loved not in ease, not in comfort. He loved sacrificially in a love that we can only begin to understand and never fully understand at all. Father, we cry out to you this morning for this church We pray, O God, that just as you use Barnabas and Saul and many unknown, unnamed, millions of unknown, unnamed disciples all through the history of the church to spread the gospel, to encourage and help and strengthen individual believers, to plant churches, to grow churches, Father, to take the gospel around the world. Father, we pray, we plead with you, O God, that you would continue doing your work here in our little church. Father, we thank you and we praise you, O God, for Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. We praise you, O God, for the faithful witness and the faithful testimony of so many believers over so many years. And Father, we cry out to you, we plead with you, O God, that we would continue this work. We would carry on preaching and teaching and encouraging and cheering and, Lord, too, admonishing when necessary that we might be all raised, we might grow up in our faith, that those around us, without really knowing too much about us, would know simply that we belong to Jesus by the way in which we love each other and serve each other and love the Lord our God. Father, we cry out to you for a work of your Holy Spirit in this place. 
Father, we ask you these things in the precious and the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.